0: Christian Church join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10:30 a.m you know um, I'm still waiting uh, it, it hasn't it hasn't arrived yet uh, I'm still waiting for my my I don't know if they're going to do this with a letter or a phone call but my induction to the Softball Hall of Fame uh, I'm still I'm still waiting waiting for that. Uh, Steve, where's it at? You're, you're a softball player in your day. Um, you in the hall of fame? Okay, well, sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, I've I've been told that it's going to happen for me at some point in time. But you know, I was I was really good. I was really. <laughs> There's a few things about, about slow-pitch softball. For one thing, let me tell you this. It's been called an old man's sport. I don't know if that is true or not. Um, but what happens when you retire from it? What does that say about you? Uh, there's a few things that you don't want to hear. If I mean, it's not as big as it used to be, Robbie. I mean, we played a lot of that together back in the day. But there's still a little bit of it going on. And, and if you young bucks out there or young ladies want to play a little slow-pitch softball, I'm going to give you a few pointers here. Okay? There's some things that you don't want to hear if you're on the softball field. Number one is this strike three. It's slow pitch softball. You do not want to strike out you don't want to do it now it is kind of funny elijah when the baseball players show up and start playing softball because they think they're they're pretty they're pretty they got a pretty high estimation of themselves that's baseball players when they're young okay so they come onto the field and they'll strike out with one pitch because they'll swing like nine times at the first pitch <laughs> it's it's they look like the tasmanian devil out there swinging at swing at that ball coming in it's like it takes a little while guys just slow down so you don't want to hear that strike three here's another one um Get behind the plate, you're catching. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to hear that. I'm sorry if that was your position in slow pitch softball. There's probably a reason for it, okay? It was my position many times. It's so funny, the first time somebody's put at catcher, especially if they've got a baseball background, they kind of get out there and like, you know? It's like, no, <laughs> okay, you can stand up, <laughs> slow pitch softball, take a step back, catch the ball on the bounce, and throw it back to the pitcher. That's all you got to do, all right? So if you get put as a catcher, don't take it personal. Uh, happened to me all the time, and I'm going to be a Hall of Famer one day. So, all right. Now, now here's the one you really don't want to hear, though. I mean, I, I, I played some, and I ended up finding myself a pitcher sometimes, Robbie, because Robbie pitched all the time. And um, you don't want to hear these two words, do you, Robbie? Middles open. <laughs> Middles open. What that means is some dummy on your team, when you're up to bat, jacked one really hard at the pitcher okay, and then the other team yells it out, middle's open, okay, you're the pitcher, you don't want the middle to be open, because some of these guys, they can actually hit that ball pretty hard, okay, so my, this is my defense mechanism when I'm pitching, okay, like Robbie, who was really good at it, he would just pitch, and then he would be ready, I wasn't very good and I wasn't very fast. I was not very quick. So I would pitch the ball and I would run to second base, sometimes all the way to the outfield. That was my defense mechanism. All right, defense mechanism. You know how natural this is? I mean, for almost every single situation where we are put on the defensive, there is a mechanism for it. And we are going to see one of these servants of Jesus on the defense. Matter of fact, this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see the content of the defense. Now, don't get me wrong. There have people who have been accused. There have people who have been threatened. There have even been people who have been physically punished for their message and their faith in Jesus Christ. But we don't get anything about their defense. We don't even know if they had an opportunity to give a defense. All we know is what they said was this. You're telling us not to preach about Jesus. Sorry, we must obey God rather than men. I mean, that's basically all we get. And then we see Stephen, and we see defense. Now we talked a little bit about Stephen last week. This is this is a little. You read about him some in chapter six. Short little chapter. Chapter seven really long. All right. And what we find out about seeing, first of all, he was a table server. There is a, there's a, a name kind of in the New Testament for that. It's called a deacon. He was a servant within the church. He was, he was, we looked at last week, he was full of faith. He was full of power. He was full of grace. And probably most importantly, as wonderful as those things are, he was also full of the Holy Spirit. And as we saw last week, Stephen, he's preaching the message of the gospel, and he's preaching around this place called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, and he was challenged quite possibly to a formal type of debate scenario, where he is there debating people about his message of Jesus Christ, and he soundly defeated his opponents. Now, as we also talked about last week, when you have been Soundly and even profoundly been defeated when it comes to a, a, a debate situation, you can do one of two things. You can admit defeat or you can cheat. And that's exactly what his opponents did. They cheated and they began accusing Stephen of doing things that really. He did not do in which the way that they accused him. These are the accusations because this sets up everything that we are going to look at today. As so we saw last week, Stephen was accused of undermining Moses and the law. That was incredibly important to the Jews. Brothers and sisters, it's incredibly important to us too. Okay, And he was accused of that, but he was also accused of blaspheming. Blasphemy specifically by saying that Jesus the Christ overshadows the temple. In other words, that great, big, beautiful temple there in Jerusalem. Jesus and his presence and his coming and the job that he did as ordained by God the Father put all of that temple stuff into the background. Now chapter 7 of Acts Is the defense of Stephen. And let me tell you something about Stephen. What he will do here. Will consistently set the tone. For the rest of the book of Acts. And what we will see again and again. Is this. His defense was not a defense of himself. It was a defense of his message. A defense of the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus came. He died. He was buried. And he arose. And through him. We can have eternal life. The message that he will get into, as we'll see here, like I said, there's a lot of history here, okay? There's a lot of history, and his message was was and is a very impressive history uh, record of Israel. And, And as you will see, written kind of between the lines of his message is this. Stephen was saying to his accusers how they needed to pick up their tent stakes, much like Abraham, as we will see, and follow where God leads, even if it means leaving tradition behind, or leaving ancestry or ritual behind. So, if you're going to start with the beginning when it comes to the history of the people of Israel, now we're not going to go all the way back to creation, but we're not going to go that far forward from that, we're going to go to the patriarchs, the patriarchs. As I said, we have a connection to them as well, so let's get our ears open to this. The patriarchs, if you're going to talk about, and patriarchs is basically this, the fathers, all right. and if you're going to talk about the fathers of the people of Israel, you've got to start with one guy. We still sing a song about him. Anybody got a guess? Father Abraham. Father Abraham. All right, so let's jump into it. Chapter 7, verse 3. Obviously, we're not going to read the whole chapter, so we're going to bounce around a little bit. This is what God said to Abraham, although at this point in time, his name was technically Abram. He said this, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now, Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldeans. Where is that? And a, probably a more known name for it. He was in Mesopotamia. He's out in the middle of nowhere, okay? Okay. And God tells him, look, I know you've been here for a while, Abram. I want you just to leave your family, pull up your tent stakes, and you need to go. And get this, he didn't tell him where he was going. I mean, how would you like to go on a trip? Where are you going? (laughs) I don't know. And I'm not talking about vacation. Like, you sell everything. Like, you sell everything and you say, we're headed out. What would you say to somebody who said that? So, so, um, you sold out? Yep, sold your business? Yep, sold your house? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Okay, where are you going? Not sure. We're just, we're headed west-northwest. That's the plan. What would you say about that plan? You're crazy, all right? All right, this is exactly what he does. God does not give him a dot on a map and say, this is where I want you to go. This is like the opposite of deeply sunk in roots here, okay? And here's the thing. When Abraham left, when Abram, I keep on saying his name was it's fine, it's fine, all right. Uh, when he and his wife, Sarai, who would be changed to Sarah, when they left, it's not like they're taking this big troop of kids with them. They had no children. So when they leave, it's not like they're taking this big family. They're leaving family, and they only took one little nephew guy, fellow. I don't know why Lot went. He just must have really, must really liked Abram. So Lot went along, but that's it. Let's continue on. I mean, obviously, if if God is telling him to do this, there must be some big plan in place. There must be something going on. Verse 5. But God gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in the place he was going. Not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Okay, so not only does he say, pick up and pack everything up and go, but where you're going, you're not going to have any land, okay? You're not going to have any place to go that's going to have your name on it. And now your descendants, uh, they're going to get a place one day, but it's going to be a while. We'll get into that here in just a second. He's saying this to a guy who's old and has no kids. So He's like, okay, so I'm going somewhere where I'm not going to have a deed and it's going to be a place where my descendants will be when I don't have any descendants. And I don't know if you've seen this, God. I'm old, and my wife is older. Now, he would never would have said that, you know. But, but they were old people. Talk about faith. I mean, talk about faith. So, God does come through on what he says. And we're going to fast forward. Like I said, we've got to fast forward here. Abraham does have a son. His name's Isaac. And Isaac has a son, a couple of them actually, but one we're going to focus on, his name's Jacob. Now Jacob has not a son, he has 12 of them. And Jacob's name would later be changed to the Hebrew version of the guy who wrestles with God, the guy who struggles with God. And that name, you might have heard of it before, his name was changed, changed to Israel. So, we are dealing now with the grandson of Abraham, and he has 12 sons of his own. So, let's take a look at it. Just perfect harmony with 12 sons. Isn't that, isn't that right, parents? Those of you who have lots of, lots of boys in the household, perfect harmony all the time. Just wonderful. All right. Let's take a look at it. We're going to look at Make sure I'm in the right spot here, because I've got a lot of verses here. Verses 9 and 10. The patriarchs, okay, now these are the fathers of the tribes. Remember, Jacob's name would be changed to Israel. He had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would become the fathers, the heads of their tribes by name, all right? So you're dealing with the 12 tribes of Israel here. And these patriarchs are the sons of Jacob. It says this, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, one of the other sons, and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. All right, so we've got Israel. We've got Israel with 12 sons. Now 10 of those sons, they did not like Joseph at all. We won't get into the whole story of that. Joseph kind of played a role in that himself, but they did not like him. They did not like him like they talked bad about him, you know, at dinner. No, they like sold him into slavery, did not like him. Okay, so he, he goes into slavery in Egypt. Guys, this is a theme we're gonna see consistently throughout everything Stephen says here. We will find out Joseph God's chosen instrument, his chosen servant through whom he will save all of his family, which is Israel. And not only save his family, but save the people of Egypt and all around that part of the known world. So what do we have? We have Israel rejecting God's chosen one little bit of theme here we're going to see consistently. God was faithful though to Joseph. He was faithful to him. He saved him through what his brothers did through him. He saved him through affliction. Um, Joseph, as you know, would rise to power in Egypt, become quite possibly the second most powerful man in the known world, People would flock to Egypt because they did not have any food. It had been famine for seven years. And yet Egypt had an abundance because of Joseph and God working through Joseph. So all of these brothers show back up and Joseph makes himself known. God saves Israel through Joseph. Now here's the question. We know later that Israel would leave Egypt. That's where we're going next. What do you think would have happened if they didn't leave? Well, that would have messed everything up, wouldn't it? The God's at work here, and a Pharaoh comes along about 400 years later or so, didn't know much about Joseph, didn't know, didn't do, he didn't, he didn't know his history, okay? And they take Israel, which has grown from a very large family to a very large nation made up of more than 2 million people, and they ensla- have enslaved them. And now the Egyptians are becoming fearful of them. And for this, we leave the time of the patriarchs, and we enter the time of Moses, Time of Moses and the law. So let's take a look at it. Let's fast forward a little bit. Chapter 7, verse 20. We're going to read several verses this time, so get ready. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. The following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? So we got Moses, and, and we know the history of this. Pharaoh, because he was fearful of the people of Israel, began killing all the baby boys in Israel to stem the tide just a little bit. Moses was spared from that. Moses ended up being raised in the home of Pharaoh himself. Raised up as by what's entitled by the the movie from DreamWorks so many years ago, The Prince of Egypt. Okay? Now Moses doesn't forget where he comes from. And he reaches this ripe age of 40 years old. About retirement age from slow pitch softball. Anyway, okay. So, and, and he's like, he sees his people being afflicted. He sees this. And thinking that they will recognize him as a man of power, of position. He goes and he takes a stand for them to the point that he kills the Egyptian official. And Israel look at him and say, you're not for us. I mean, think about it. Look at how Stephen, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, writes this up. Moses is thinking, it's time. It's time to leave Egypt, and I'm the one that's going to do it. But what happens when the people don't back your play? They rejected Moses. A little something about that theme again. And then Moses leaves Egypt because Pharaoh wants to kill him because he had killed one of the Roman, or the Roman, my goodness, one of the Egyptian officials. Okay, I'm guessing Pharaoh never really took too kindly to that Hebrew kid being in their house anyway, so he wants to kill him. Moses heads out to to Midian, okay, he becomes a shepherd, starts a family, and one day he sees something. Now for I think a couple years now I've been kind of uh, moonlighting across the street over at the volunteer fire department. I only go out on calls when I'm here at the office. And um, so I've seen, I've seen a brush fire or two, and I will tell you this, uh, not this time of year, but a couple of months ago, month and a half to two months ago, my, if, if you like a good fireworks display, I'm not telling you to light them on fire, okay? But if, if there's ever some, some live cedar trees burning, wow. I mean... It, it can get pretty exciting. I mean, it really, let's say you light those suckers up and they take off, all right? And it's pretty impressive to see. But but in my short time there, and there's others who served in that capacity for a lot longer, I am guessing that none of them have seen a cedar tree light up and continue to burn and burn and burn and burn and burn and, burn and never burn up. Well, that's exactly what the shepherd Moses saw. He sees a bush a shrub burning and yet, The shrub remains. And this catches his attention. So he goes and he sees it. Let's see what happens next. Verse 31. When Moses saw it, saw this bush, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. Look What happens next? But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you Egypt. So Moses goes back to Egypt. It's a little bit different attitude than he had when he left Egypt. Boy, he thought he could lead a nation out of his own volition and of his own power. When God speaks to him this time, he can't keep from stumbling all over himself. He says, I can't do this, Lord. I'm not, I'm not the guy. It's, it's not me. It's not me. It's 40 years and humbled him. And yet he does go. And notice the words, the specific words of Stephen to describe what takes place next. Look at verse 35 and 36. This Moses whom they disowned saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be Be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the lands of Egypt. And in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you a little something about the next 40 years of Moses. There's one word that could be used to describe it. Adversity. And the adversity that he was met with, the majority of it didn't come from Pharaoh. It came from his own people. Israel did not make any of this easy on Moses. There's two more verses that stand way out as Stephen concludes his Moses portion of this historical survey. So we better take a look at them. Verse 37. This is, is the Moses who said in, to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Okay, let me just, let me just we, we need to understand the significance of here just for a moment, okay, guys? Guys and gals, listen closely. The Jewish people, they took Moses, I mean, you got David, got Elijah, you got Abraham. Abraham's up there pretty far. When it comes to these, these heroes of the Old Testament, Moses is here, okay? It was Moses that God used to deliver them from oppression in Egypt. It was Moses through whom God brought the law. And Moses is looking at Israel and saying, the day's coming when God will raise up a prophet like me from amongst your brethren. See where Stephen's going with this message here, okay? That's a big deal. Now look at verse 39. (laughs) Stephen brings this up again. He says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to Moses, but repudiated him. In their hearts and turn back to Egypt. How many of you use the word repudiate this week? Bill, you use that? You're an English guy. No repudiate for you. You didn't repudiate Lisa? Didn't use the word. Okay. All right. That's good. That's good. Think of all Moses had done for this nation of Israel. Remember the Red Sea? You remember the ten plagues? It was God working through Moses to accomplish all of that. You remember all these things? They reject him. Say it's better for us back in Egypt. Well, I like making those bricks without straw. That was good life. That was the good life. I liked not having enough to eat. I liked. I. I just absolutely loved our children being killed. That was a good thing, wasn't it? Wasn't that the good life? We're talking about Moses here, folks. As I told you, the Israelites, the Jews, they held him up here, yet their fathers, what did they do with Moses? They rejected him. There's one more detail when it comes of Moses' time with Israel. We're talking about a long time from Abraham to Moses, folks. I hope you realize that. We're talking hundreds of years here. And guess what? They still don't have a dot on the map. They're still wandering The whole life of Moses, they wonder and they wonder. Here's the question. What made that Gentile land so special? That land of Midian. What made that land so special that Moses was instructed by God to take the sandals off his feet because he's standing on holy ground? What made that so special? The presence of God. Had nothing to do. With the real estate. It had to do with God's presence. So then we kind of move from Moses and the law, and then where are we gonna go next? We're still kind of in Moses because before you can get to the temple, you have the tabernacle. And Moses was instructed to build something. This is what's crazy. Moses was not instructed to build a building, a brick and stone, mortar, wood building. He was told to build a tent. Why? They didn't have a dot on the map. They didn't have a home. They're wandering all over the place. So if you're going to take this centerpiece, this place where you focus your worship to God, you've got to take it with you. So he was instructed to build this tent. It is called the tabernacle. So we go from Moses, he's dead and God or he's dead and gone and God buried him. That's just mind blowing to me. All right. I mean, God did his funeral. That's just whew. That'd be amazing to see. Unfortunately, nobody saw it because it was just Moses and God. That was it. So you go from Moses to his young protege. His name was Joshua. It was Joshua who would take the nation of Israel into the promised land to make. And now they're finally going to get a little bit of a dot on the map. Joshua helps them conquer most, not all, of the land of Canaan. Then Joshua's dead and gone. And then we enter the time of the judges. You might remember some of them. Gideon, that's one of them. Deborah, another um, how about how about Samson? Maybe you've heard of that guy. Well, there's there's a number of them. Okay, and then we go from them and we enter what is called the period of the kings. First king was a guy named Saul, kind of a dummy. All right. I'm just gonna be straight with you. Um started well, ended horribly. Um, but that second king, that second king, like, like, he's like here. I mean, you've got like Moses here, and you've got this guy you know, kind of right here. Uh, His name, his name was David. He was the guy of all the Old Testament who was given this. I mean, guys, can can you imagine being given this title? Man after God's own heart. I mean, my goodness, can you imagine something better to be said at your funeral? Yeah, that was a man after God's own heart right there. So we've got, we've got King David here. Now, he, he was a warrior. He was a fighter. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was many, many things. He was a shepherd, but he was a warrior. He was a fighter, and it was him who, through whom God would subdue the Philistines and the other nations nearby. It was him that this place that they're having this whole trial, it was Stephen. Temple. before that, before that, guys, there was no Jerusalem. It's a little hayseed town in the middle of nowhere. It was David who would make that his place, and the place in which would be his throne. Here's the problem, though. This is a lot gone by now in the life of David, and he's looking, and he's got this palace made of cedar and 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 stone and gold. I mean, it's impressive. And then he looks over there, and where are the people still worshiping God in? A tent. And it, it's bugging him. He's like, he's like, I don't, I don't like this. I've got this palace, and yet yet There's still just a tent over there. Let's take a look at it. Verses 46 and 47. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. You see... David wanted to build the house he wanted to build the temple, but his hands were too bloody to do so, so it would be his son Solomon who would build this temple. Now what we read next might be you might think if you were listening if you were listening to Stephen at that time, if you were a part, I hope you wouldn't be, but if we were I hope none of us would be a part of the Sanhedrin at that time accusing him. You might think that he's taking a, a little bit of creative license with the record here, all right? Because look what he says in verse 48, and I'm sorry because it, it's going to be all of the verse up there. I'm going to try to stop a little early. Here it says. He says this. Stephen continues. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And they might think, well, what's that temple for, Stephen? But here's the thing. Stephen's making nothing up. This is historical record. So let's read verse 48 again and follow it the next couple of verses. Stephen says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, that's the prophet Isaiah who said those words many, many years later. And he said, that temple doesn't, you really honestly think that God's in that thing? And get this, Isaiah said it years later. But what was the name of the guy who built the temple originally? He's David's son. His name's Solomon. He said the same thing. The thing just finished being built. He looks at the people of Israel and he says, I want you to understand something though. God doesn't dwell in this place. He's much, much too big for that. What kind of building can hold God. You see, the false gods of the heathens have houses made of wood and stone, but not the creator of everything. We talked about it last week. It says in the end of chapter six that they looked at Stephen's face, and it was like the face of an angel. <laughs> I told you last week, don't go over to Carthage to the Precious Moments Chapel and think that's what Stephen's face looked like, okay? The little chubby face with blue eyes or whatever, all right? No. His eyes were on fire with the power and the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. And Stephen's his eyes of fire focus on his accusers. And this is what he says, do you honestly think your golden cage there can hold God? Stephen, at this point in time, he's answered his accusers, brothers and sisters. He's let him know, Jesus is the new Moses. Moses himself said the one was coming. Jesus is the new Moses, only much greater than Moses. He finished everything Moses, the law, and the prophets foretold. His dwelling place is the heavens above and on the earthly side. God dwells within his people. And it was at this point in time that Stephen, he's been boxing with gloves at this point, all right, guys? I mean, he's been pulling his punches just a little bit. Got to read between the lines to see that he's really packing a punch here, but at this point in time, he pulls the gloves off, okay? And he starts swinging haymakers. (laughs) Let's see what happens next. Verse 51. Stephen says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. That stiff-necked, folks, now some of you might have experienced this at some point in time. You sleep wrong, you wake up, and you can't move. You've been there before? That's not what this is talking about. What it's talking about is something else that you might have experienced, hopefully not, but when when you're in a discussion or debate with someone okay and you get to such a point that that you're not going to look at them anymore it's like look at me when i'm talking to you i not gonna do it i know you're over there i'm not looking at you matter of fact i'm looking over here take that stiff necked Now, it can go a little bit further than that. It can go like those who are trying to lead something around with a halter. Not going to do it. I'm going to stiffen my neck. This is an accusation of God towards his people from all the way in those wilderness wanderings of Israel under Moses. And he said it again and again You stiff necked people, why won't you listen? This was God's complaint when he's talking to them. Stephen's not done yet, though. Look at verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Now, I will give... I will give, we will give the Sanhedrin one thing here. At least they didn't try to revise history. That's like crazy, and that's like taking place in our young nation at this point. They're like trying to revise history, all kinds of stuff, and do away with it, all right? At least they did not participate in revisionist history here, okay? But this is the deal. When they look back on history, they they took those prophets that were persecuted by their fathers. And they lifted them up as heroes. And they, they looked at those persecutors of the prophets as villains. But guess what? Jesus in Luke 23 made it very clear when he spoke to the people who made up the Sanhedrin that Stephen was in front of right here. And Jesus said, you are carrying on the tradition of your fathers. You persecute the messengers of God. The people God sends to wake you up. You not only don't listen to them, you kill them. And Stephen can go even to the point of saying, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one of God. Verse 53, this is how Stephen wraps everything up. He says, you have done this, you who received the law as ordained by angels, but yet did not keep it. And right there, he sums up everything. Brothers and sisters, we've got Stephen. He's on trial before the Sanhedrin, who were the religious elite of the Jewish people. You got Stephen here, this man filled with the holy fire of God, letting them have it. In that group, who in that group had never broken the law of God? None of them. I mean, Paul, who was there watching all of this, Would later say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And see, that is the incredibly, sadly ironic thing about what Stephen's doing here. He is giving the way. the way out from being a lawbreaker, condemned to eternal death. He's giving that to them. That's the message he's preaching and they will not receive it. The very message that he said, that he proclaimed, was the only way. What's it say? For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten, his one and only Son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the message that Stephen is proclaiming. Everything Stephen had to say before this group made perfect sense. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something right now. If anybody accuses you of believing in a fairy tale, they're an idiot. I'm sorry, it's just the truth. Everything about our faith in Jesus Christ makes sense. Your history in Jesus is more than 2,000 years old. It's thousands of years old. And from the beginning, this was the plan. And every part of Jesus, his coming, his life, his death, and resurrection fulfilled everything that God had put into place. He did live. He did die. He does live again. That is the truth, and it does make sense. And Stephen preached this message to this people, and his accusers refused to see the truth. This is the thing about this defense, brothers and sisters. He was aggressively defending life itself. Don't you get it? Stephen, with fire in his eyes, was preaching salvation to this crew that would not listen. We're going to find out by the end of this thing. We'll look at it next week. That Stephen did not present this message with a heart of vengeance. You know what this cat said? You know what this guy said before he died? They're throwing stones on his head? Father, forgive him. I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know about you. It seems like I just I just can't pull myself back from looking at the news occasionally. <laughs> Even though it frustrates me. <laughs> There's something that recently took place that I just read about yesterday and I'm not going to go into the details of it I'm not it's not it's not even worth the time of talking about because it's just so unbelievably ugly evil had to do with young innocent people being put into an environment that's so heinous so wicked so disgusting and it being celebrated it took place in all places in Dallas, Texas now, this obviously caught the attention of some people. So there are people outside of this establishment. And, and there, man, there's, there's some animosity. There's tension in the air, let me tell you. And, and a part of that, that group that is standing outside, they're, they're, they're yelling something. And what they're yelling is this, Christ is King. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. There is a place for righteous anger. Especially, especially when you see young people being victimized. We're talking toddlers, people. And yet, I, I wonder, because I'm telling you, there were... I don't think it came to blows with anybody, but there were people spitting on each other. I mean there was curse. I mean there were, it was ugly. And the type of environment if you're a part of, boy, it could get you going, I bet. I wasn't there. I read about it. But I have to wonder of those shouting out the words, "Christ is king." I have to wonder if there was any compassion in their hearts, if when they viewed this scene, if they were only angered by it or if they were saddened by it. Because brothers and sisters, when we view a world getting darker, it should not just anger us. It should break us if we have the heart of Christ. Stephen gave these people the truth. They would not listen. We will see how they respond next week. But it is obvious by his response that his heart was broken for these people.